Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller. I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Several months ago, I released a new book for Franklin Covey called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. I basically asked for permission from 30 of our favorite interviewees, people like Dan Pink and Seth Godin and Susan Cain and Liz Wiseman, General Stanley McChrystal, Nancy Duarte and others to say, hey, you know, you said something transformative on the podcast. Could I share it in a book so that a broader audience can learn about your transformational insight and perhaps become exposed to you and your books and content as well? And the book has become a number one new release on Amazon, and we continue to publish new versions of Master Mentors, Volume 2, coming out in 2022, followed by Volume 3. Our guest today, of course, is someone I would love to have featured in Master Mentors as well. Maybe he will oblige. It's James Clear, the author of the incomparable book, Atomic Habits. This book continues to be, every week, number one on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It is, as of right now, this taping, number two on Amazon. Of all books in print with over 55,000 reviews, the book has, in almost exactly three years, sold five million copies. To give you some context for that, Dr. Covey, the co-founder of our firm and the author of the equally incomparable book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has sold 30 million copies. Not just in print, when you add in digital and audio and translations, it's sold 40 million copies. And James in in three years has sold 5 million. It shows you the strength and power and perhaps even longevity of this book. James Clear, we are honored to have you here today. Welcome to On Leadership. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thank you for the kind introduction. Book, the, uh, James, the book is Atomic Habits. It is, uh, it is insanely practical and relatable. It is in many ways taking common sense and putting it into common practice for most people. It's really how Franklin Covey has thrived, right? Is taking the principles that govern human behavior and, and, and breaking them down into, into processes with tools and procedures and, to quote, use systems that allows people to, in fact, change their behavior. We know and share a, a passion for the role that uh, mental creation precedes physical creation, the role that your mindsets, your paradigms have on your behaviors. We're going to talk a lot about some of the key insights into Atomic Habits today. But, James, would you reorient our listeners and viewers about your story. You opened the book with a quite horrifying and compelling uh, uh, recap of an injury you, injury you had and how you came on to thrive beyond that. Would you tell people what brought you to Atomic Habits and why you think this book has had such success in the past three years? Sure. So my sophomore year of high school, I suffered a very serious injury. Um, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident. A classmate of mine took a swing and bat slipped out of his hands and kind of struck me right between the eyes. Um, Broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, your ethmoid bone, which is fairly deep inside your skull. Shattered both eye sockets. Um, I stumbled back down into school and answered some questions at the nurse's office and kind of gradually uh, got worse and worse. The swelling in my brain got to the point where I lost consciousness. Pretty soon after that, I started to struggle with basic functions like swallowing and breathing. After a few more minutes, I had my first seizure of the day. Uh, I'd end up having three more. I lost the ability to breathe on my own. They had to intubate me. The nurse and doctors are pumping breath into me by hand. 
at this point, they decide the situation's too serious to handle with the local hospital. So they air care me to a larger facility in Cincinnati. And um, when I land on the roof of the hospital, a team of a dozen doctors and nurses rush out throw me onto a stretcher, wheel me into surgery. They take my mom off to a waiting room where she meets back up with my dad. And uh, as I was getting ready to undergo surgery, the doctors, I have another seizure and the doctors decide I'm too unstable at that moment. So they place me into a medically induced coma. And as they're making that decision, uh, a priest comes up to talk to my parents and they actually were no strangers to this particular hospital. My sister had been diagnosed with leukemia at the age of three. And this was the same priest that they had met with a few years prior uh, during her incident. Thankfully, she's recovered and she's, you know, safe and healthy now. Um, in my case, I, uh, I was in the coma throughout the night. And then the next morning, I, my vitals had stabilized to the point where they were comfortable releasing me from the coma. So they did that. Eventually, I regained consciousness. And um, I tell one of the nurses, you know, I feel like I've lost the ability to smell. And so she grabs an apple juice box and comes up to me and says, uh, you know, why don't you blow your nose and try to get a lot of the blood and gunk and everything out of there and then try smelling this apple juice box. So I did that and my sense of smell did return, but the action of blowing my nose forced air through the cracks in my shattered eye socket. And so now my left eye was bulging out of the socket. <laughs> Story just keeps getting worse. Um, but, uh, you know, so I look like I'm on the wrong end of a boxing match. All the doctors huddle up. They bring the ophthalmologist in. And eventually they said, okay, look, you know, I think the good news is your eye will go back into place. Uh, the bad news is we don't know how long that will take. And it ended up taking about a month or two for it to gradually kind of recede to its normal position. But, uh, you know, at that point, I, the process of healing was starting to begin, but it was a very long road for me. So, I was on seizure medication for the next year. I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. I had double vision for weeks. My first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. And this time in my life, although I didn't know it in the moment, uh, it was a time when I was forced to start small. You know, like all I wanted was just to be a normal kid again and go back to high school and hang out with friends and play on the baseball team. and. Um, you know, I just got my driver's license. I wanted to be able to drive a car like, and I couldn't do any of that stuff. I had to focus just on what can I do today? Can I make progress at this physical therapy session? Can I make some small improvement? And of course, years later, as I wrote Atomic Habits, like getting 1% better each day and making these small improvements ended up becoming a core part of my philosophy. I didn't have a language for it at the time. I wouldn't have described it that way. I never would have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better each day. But it was a time in my life when I had to practice that. And so gradually I got back on the baseball field. Uh, I ended up having a very modest high school career, barely got to play, but I was able to weasel my way onto a college team and then progressively got better each year and ultimately ended up being an academic All-American my senior year. And so, you know, I don't think there's anything necessarily legendary or heroic or anything like that about my story. We all face challenges in life and this just happened to be one of mine. But I do think that process taught me the importance of starting small, accumulating small improvements. And looking back, I feel like I was able to maximize my potential, even if, you know, I never played professionally or something like that. And I think ultimately what all of us really want is just to be able to feel like we made the most of the chance that we had despite the challenges that we face along the way. 
And this was a period of my life when I felt like I had to learn that lesson firsthand and it's influenced the work and the writing that I've done since then. Thank you, James. In fact, you actually tell the story in riveting fashion in the opening of the book. I mean, you can't put it down. It's like three or four pages of almost moment by moment. And you've sort of undertold it here because you're humble. But the fact of the matter is, yes, you went on to a fairly spectacular series of accomplishments in terms of the discipline and the focus it took to understand your identity, how systems and processes, how focusing on outputs versus perhaps, or inputs, perhaps just not just outputs, has transformed your own success in life. You know, we've interviewed many people that have a lot of robust expertise around habits. Charles Duhigg, of course, is a friend you very generously quote and give him much credit in your book. B.J. Fogg, the Stanford researcher and professor who wrote Tiny Habits, naturally Dr. Covey, who wrote the seminal book, The Seven Habits. And so today you kind of round out this picture, if you will, of expertise with five million copies of your book sold. Your, your point of view is really about the role habits plays in, in life is as much about creating systems, if you will, and focusing on small, tiny, incremental changes. Dr. Covey would have called them trim tab adjustments. He often used the metaphor of an ocean liner that has you know, a five or six story propeller or rudder. But the fact of the matter is there's a smaller rudder that perhaps is you know, 20 or 30 feet that is called a trim tab. And it's that small rudder that changes the motion of the, of the boat and the big rudder. Will you talk a bit about your passion and research around systems and creating uh, not only goals in life, but the role that systems plays in, in, in changing our habits? Sure. So I do think that building systems is crucial for making progress in the long run. You know, it's not that that habits don't or uh, sorry, that goals don't matter. It's not that having goals or, you know, being ambitious is useless. Like certainly there is great uh, use and value in knowing what you're optimizing for. But the truth is setting the goal is often the easy part. You know, like I can set a goal right now to sell 10 million books. You know, it took me like three seconds. Um, and in fact, if you look at many areas of life, many domains in life, the winners and the losers, so to speak, often have the same goals. You know, like imagine uh, an athlete at the Olympic Games. Presumably, every athlete that is competing has the goal of winning the gold medal. It's not the goal that makes the difference in their performance. It's the system they follow, the way they train, the way they practice, their coaching, their nutrition, how much sleep they got the night before. Same thing is true, you know, let's say there's a job opening and 100 candidates apply for a job. Presumably, every candidate has the goal of getting the job. So again, it's the system they follow, the way they prepare for the interview, their networking, the connections they have, their education, their experience, and so on. And if the winners and the losers have the same goals, then the goal cannot be the thing that makes the difference in their performance. It might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for success. And this is why I say, like, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And if I was going to put like a little finer point on that language and connect it back to our conversation about habits, what is your goal? Your goal is your desired outcome, the target, the thing you're shooting for. What is your system? Your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there's ever a gap between your goal and your system, if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win, right? Almost by definition, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. You know, whatever system you've been running, whatever collection of habits you've been following for the last three months or six months or year, 
it's carried you almost inevitably to the results that you have right now. Now, you know, certainly there are some other things in life that influence outcomes, right? You have luck and randomness and misfortune and so on. But each day you have the opportunity to make a good choice or a bad one, to build a good habit or a bad one, to capitalize on an opportunity or not. And what happens is that over time, your life bends in the direction of your habits. The arc, the trajectory of your life is shaped by the habits that you perform day in and day out with some bumps and challenges along the way, uh, like my injury or, as I mentioned, good luck, bad luck, randomness, and so on. And so the system that you're running, it's like each little habit that you have is like a gear in the overall machine. And by building better habits, by putting a collection of better behaviors together, that's how you sort of create a system that carries you inevitably toward this outcome. It's not just about setting a goal or having a big vision or being more ambitious or something like that. And uh, so ultimately, I think habits drive your outcomes in life because they create the system that delivers the results that you have. I mean, many of your, perhaps even most of your results in life are a lagging measure of the habits that precede them. You know, like your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your training habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Even something like simple, like the amount of clutter on your desk or in your garage is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And it's one of the great like ironies of life. We also badly want our results to change. We also badly want better outcomes but the results are not actually the thing that needs to change. It's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. James, take that a step further. You write a lot about how our uh, behaviors are typically a reflection of our identities and that our identities are, are so closely tied to the habits we have. What is the role that identity plays in um, achieving results and changing our behaviors? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think this is the real reason that habits matter. The, the surface level reason that we all discuss for habits mattering is like, oh, building better habits can help you lose weight or make money or be more productive or reduce stress. And, you know, it's true. Like habits can do all those things. And it's great that they can provide that kind of value. But I think the real reason, the deeper reason that habits matter is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And so habits provide evidence of your identity. They reinforce certain aspects of your story. You know, in a sense, every time that you perform a habit, you embody that element of your identity. So like whenever you make your bed in the morning, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Or if you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. If you meditate for one minute, you embody the identity of someone who is a meditator. And, you know, individually, those single instances don't mean a whole lot. But collectively, as you start to cast these votes and build up this body of evidence, you start to have proof of like, hey, maybe this is part of who I am. You know, maybe this is an important part of my story. And so you keep showing up for a month or six months or a year. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, like I just being a meditator is part of who I am. And this is a little bit different than what you often hear. Like you often hear people say things like, uh, you know, fake it till you make it. Well, you know, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call that delusion. 
right? Like at some point your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you say you are, who you say you are and what you're actually doing. So behavior and beliefs are a two way street, you know, like what you believe influences the way you act and the way you act influences what you believe. But my argument is to let the behavior lead the way to start with one push up or making one sales call or meditating for one minute or writing one sentence and to let that small action be undeniable proof that in that moment you were that kind of person. And eventually you have enough evidence that you have every reason to believe it. And so that's the meaning behind that phrase. Every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And I think that's the deeper reason habits matter. James, on that point, you've written about to kind of decide who you want to be and prove it to yourself with small wins. If you want to be, if you want to be someone who is organized and clean and clutter-free, make a promise to yourself to take your dish to the dishwasher after eating and putting it in the dishwasher. Don't let it build up over time and then you know, feel overwhelmed by it. And so you talk extensively around how these small wins, how these small habits can actually fulfill an identity that we have for ourselves or could have you know, for our, our future selves. You also talk about how important it is to edit your beliefs because we all think that other people should change their beliefs, right? We think our beliefs are quite realistic. We see the world not as it is, but as we are, to quote Dr. Covey. Uh, expand a little bit on this concept of editing your beliefs. You and Dr. Covey share that in common, of course, the power of our mental mind and our paradigms and the impact, the undeniable impact they have on both our behaviors and our results. What does it mean to edit your beliefs? Well, unlearning is required for progress. You know, I mean, you have to be able to upgrade and improve to expand your thinking uh, if you're going to change. And part of the reason for that is the world is dynamic, not static. Right. Like maybe if the situation was always the same, if things never changed, if the world didn't progress and improve and move on and so on, then you could get by with holding on to the same beliefs. But that's not how the world works. The world is ever moving, ever changing. And so you have to be flexible and pliable. You have to be continually evolving as well. It's kind of like evolve or die. And so in that sense, unlearning is just as important as learning. And. I like to view, you know, these aspects or elements of our identity. It's, it's sort of like retouching a painting. You know, it's not like you got to rip the whole thing up and throw it out. It's just there need to be gradual adjustments made as the world is also gradually adjusting or as you're finding yourself in new situations. The other thing is that you as an individual, not just the world, but also you personally are not static. You know, I mean, imagine the person that you are today compared to the person you were 10 years ago. You probably have different priorities, different interests, different, um, you know, things that get emphasis versus things that have been de-emphasized over the last decade. And the person you'll be 10 years from now is probably going to be similar. You know, it's going to change in some meaningful way. And so if you are also continuing to change, if you are also entering new seasons throughout your life, well, whenever the season changes, your habits also often need to change. And so I think this is all part of that process of continually upgrading and expanding, moving uh, beyond your current identity into something that is now new. And there's a series of questions you can ask yourself. I mean, specifically with your identity, it's kind of like, what season am I in right now? And what habits and behaviors would be useful for that season? Do I need to reclaim some old habits that I used to have that maybe have fallen by the wayside? Or do I need to, um, you know, abandon or reduce some behaviors that maybe used to serve me, but don't serve me as much anymore. 
And then with your beliefs, I mean, there's a set of questions we can ask about like, what beliefs or stories am I telling myself? What narratives am I continuing to believe in or hold on to that no longer serve me? Because it's quite possible that you had a belief that really made sense for a previous season, for a previous time, for a previous situation that just doesn't serve you in the same way anymore. And that doesn't mean that that belief wasn't useful. It, it just means that it, it already served its use. And maybe now we need to upgrade and expand or move on to something new. And this is one of the, I think, challenging things. It's, it's a cycle of behavior change. It's not just like you make one shift and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. There are many aspects of your identity that will serve you for a season. But if you continue to hold tightly to them, they end up holding you back. And the tighter you cling to your current identity, the harder it becomes to move beyond it. So you need to both be able to deeply believe in the aspects of your identity that serve you in this moment. And then you also need to somehow be willing to release them when they no longer serve you. James, in the last 30 years, and I would know if you look at the set behind me, Franklin Covey has had some expertise in publishing books and I am privileged to host this, what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. You know, there are a handful of books that have had the success that Atomic Habits has had. It's hard to actually exaggerate the success of this book, three years, five million copies. You know, Seven Habits, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Influence, you know, Who Moved My Cheese, perhaps a book from Brene Brown. There are a half dozen books that have come even close to the success that Atomic Habits has had. Why do you think the book has been so popular and well-received? Even three years later, your book is this week number one on the Wall Street Journalist, number two on Amazon out of all books in print, 55,000 Amazon reviews. Why is it done so well? What, what core did it strike with people? Yeah, thank you. I, I've been very fortunate. I think, um, you know, it's hard to analyze every bit of it. I'm sure there's a good deal of luck involved. But uh, when I look back on the things that I did, that I think uh, ended up working well. The number one thing is I just want to create something that's useful, you know. And so I tried to take all of the lessons and learnings from all these previous books that you had mentioned, you know, like there, I had a great advantage, which is I came after those books. So uh, I could build upon all these wonderful ideas that Covey and Duhigg and Fogg and Brene Brown and, you know, all the very, very long list of people um, have already covered. And the truth is, you know, people have been writing about habits for a long time and they're going to be writing about them a long time after I'm gone. And I am just occupying a very small sliver of space. Uh, and my task or my uh, hope was that during that little sliver that I had, I could write the most useful book possible. And so I focused mostly on practical application. A lot of other books have talked about the science of habits. Uh, a lot of other books have talked about like the phenomenon of habits and how they influence your life and where they show up. Um, and I touch on those things, but the main thing that I want is can people use the ideas? You know, I care about the ideas being grounded in science. I care about the ideas being true and accurate, but what I care about more than anything is, is the idea useful? And so, uh, you know, I think my contribution, I don't come up with the research, um, and, uh, I don't come up with the, you know, the primary, uh, scientific studies, but my job is, can I be a bridge? Can I be someone who can take those insights and make them actionable and share ideas in an easy to understand and straightforward to apply uh, way? And um, I hope that the book was able to do that. 
Uh, your humility is unnatural for many authors of your stature, but thank you for sharing that. Let's get personal for a moment. Uh, you wrote the book three years ago. Since then, of course, we've all lived through differently a pandemic. You write quite practically in the book about sort of, uh, I think you say, one space, one use. For the millions of listeners around the world right now that were confined to their home or to perhaps their New York City apartment or some other you know, urban space where there wasn't a room for a use, they were working and living in their bedroom or in their studio, what advice, perhaps post-pandemic, for people who are either going back to the office or they're in a hybrid role or they're still finding that they're working from home and will for the future of their career because their industry or their employer has adapted a new normal, what, what prescriptive advice would you give to people about how to stay organized and build healthy habits when they're living now where they are working and that's prone to cause them challenges versus perhaps focus them or motivate them on better systems? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, certainly it's been a challenging time for uh, many of us, all of us in some uh, way, some more than others. But, um, you know, one way that you can define a habit, usually the way people define it is they say, you know, oh, it's this automatic behavior or something you do kind of mindlessly, brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or whatever. But a different way to define it, one that I find useful, is that it's a behavior tied to a particular context. So, for example, the couch at 7 p.m. is the context where you have the habit of watching Netflix each night. And as you mentioned, you know, over the last year or two, many people have been forced to work from their couch or their kitchen tables, now their office and so on. And so what you have is this blending of context. You have this merging of environments and it does create a little bit of a challenge. You know, it's like, is the couch the place where I answer email or is this the place where I watch Netflix? Is the kitchen table the place where I eat breakfast or is this the place where I do Zoom calls? And uh, a lot of habits have sort of struggled because of that. You don't have a space for them. And so this practical takeaway that you mentioned, one space, one use, the idea behind that, and there are actually a couple studies that support this, generally speaking, it seems to be easier to build a new habit if you have a dedicated space for it. Now, that doesn't have to mean that it's just an empty room or a room that you don't do anything else in. Um, it can work that way. For example, I have a home gym and there's a room in our basement that is just filled with workout equipment. And like, that is where the workout habit happens. And there's no mixing of context there. I don't watch Netflix there. I don't eat breakfast there. I just work out there. And it does make it easier for me to get in the mode and get in the mindset of doing the workout because I have that space dedicated to it. But if you don't have an entire room, you can also just do a space within a room. So for example, let's say that you wanted to start a reading habit and you're like, all right, I'm going to read after dinner instead of watching TV and you sit down on the couch, well, if it's 7 p.m. and you're on the couch, even without really having to think about it, you're sort of subconsciously pulled towards picking up the remote and turning on Netflix. And so what you could do is get like a chair and put it in the corner of the room, and that becomes the reading chair. And the only thing that you do there is you read books. And the more consistent you are about having one space for one use, about having a single habit tied to a particular location, the easier it will become to stick with that habit or to get in the right mindset and not feel, say, pulled toward picking up the remote control. And so that's kind of the idea behind this division of space or this division of location. James, take that also to parenting. Uh, I mean, I asked this question exactly right, but most of our viewers and listeners know I am privileged to be the parent of three young boys that are now uh, 7, 10, and 11. I use quotation marks for those who can't see me because some days it's not a privilege. It's an absolute nightmarish burden. 
but I am doing my best. And I recognize the, the science behind delayed gratification and the infamous marshmallow test, right? And identity and self-esteem with children who can delay gratification. And in many ways, there's research that talks to the opposite of that is, you know, if you reward yourself with good habits, you can see incremental progress. Any advice in terms of your research or experience around that perhaps conundrum that exists between, you know, risk, reward, and immediate gratification, and the need to delay that over time, especially for parents of perhaps young children? So we've already talked a little bit about identity, about reinforcing the type of identity you want to have or performing behaviors that cast a vote for your desired identity. And I think that's an important thing to consider here when we talk about reinforcement and rewards and so on, because ultimately what we're trying to get to is doing the right thing for the right thing's sake, right? So um, sometimes that means being kind or being forgiving and you know some of these other values and characteristics that we try to foster in our kids and in ourselves. Other times though, it also applies just to like basic habits that people talk about building, like fitness, for example. The ultimate reward for a workout is when you get to the point where even when you're in the middle of doing a squat, you're like, oh, I'm being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, or I am casting votes for being a healthy person just by doing this set or just by doing these reps. And you don't even really need the external rewards as much because just the act of doing it is reinforcing the kind of person you want to be. Now, I do think that's what we're ultimately working toward, this kind of like intrinsic motivation, this reinforcement of your desired identity. But the truth is, look, sometimes it's hard to feel that way, especially in the beginning. I mean, if you go to the gym for the first week, like if you're back in the gym for the first time in a long time, it's uncomfortable. You feel like people are judging you. You're worried about doing it wrong or looking stupid. Your muscles are sore. There isn't really a whole lot of initial payoff there. And it's hard to say, oh, you know, you should just feel like you're being the right person who works out just by doing this. And that's where I think some of these external rewards and reinforcements can come into play. And so you can have something like, say, uh, every week that you don't miss a workout, you get to reward yourself on the weekend with a bubble bath or something like that. That like um, the key is that these external rewards also cast a vote for your desired identity. You know, if if the external reward is, hey, whenever I finish a workout, I get to go get like a pint of ice cream, then it's like, well, I'm kind of casting competing votes, you know, like one vote casts uh, a vote for this identity of a healthy person and the other vote casts a vote for like, I love to eat ice cream. And this doesn't mean you can't eat ice cream, of course, I'm just trying to, you know, illustrate the example here. Um, But a bubble bath is like a vote for, oh, I'm taking care of my body. And so you can see you have a story for how that reward is also aligned with the ultimate identity you're trying to build. And this brings me back to your question about your sons and kind of like reinforcing the desired behavior. Yeah, you want them to delay gratification, but sometimes that's a big ask, especially for children. Uh, And so it may be necessary to provide a reward in the moment. But I think the key is, do you have a path? Do you have a story? that links that uh, immediate reward with the long-term identity we're trying to build? Are you, or are you casting votes for conflicting identities? So do they see how, okay, you know, I get an allowance when I go out and cut the grass, but ultimately we're not doing this for money. We're doing this because uh, we want to reinforce being the kind of person who helps their family and who, um, you know, is helpful around the household and so on. And that's the story that we're telling them. That's why we're rewarding you because we care about this. And this is the type of identity we try to foster in this household, not you just do things when you get paid for them. 
Um, so I think you need some kind of connection point between the identity you're trying to build and the immediate reward that's being offered. Wish me luck tonight. I'll be working on that with Yeah, good luck. <laughs> James, in many ways, my favorite insight in the entire book, which is, of course, chock full of practical application ideas, is, uh, this, is this notion of, not notion, is this importance of your identity. We've talked a lot about it. It reminds me of an interview we had here about a year ago with Stedman Graham. Stedman Graham is a quite famous author, entrepreneur, a very accomplished businessman in Chicago, known to many in the world as the life partner to Oprah Winfrey, he, which is tough to create an identity outside of that being you know, the definition of who you are by countless billions of people. Stedman writes a lot about how many of us just simply fulfill the identity that others placed upon us. Oftentimes our parents, perhaps our rabbis, our imams, our priests, our headmasters. And instead he really encourages us to spend time choosing our own identity, independent of what perhaps my father wanted me to be an engineer like my brother, and therefore I'm the second favorite child. Thank you, Dad. Love you. What would you say to send us off around when people want to right now, after listening to this podcast and buying and reading your book, what is the, what is the process, the system we should follow to help us choose our identity? I'm not a smoker. I am an author. I am a successful Physician, is there anything you've learned around giving people today a, 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 a ignite of their flame, to ignite their genius around choosing their identity and how to start fulfilling that today through behaviors? Well, I can't tell you what your identity should be, but I can offer some questions that maybe help you discover what it is. I mean, it's a personal answer, right? Sure. So I think one question to ask yourself is what am I optimizing for? You know, different people optimize for different things. Some people optimize for money. Some people optimize for free time. Some people optimize for connection, relationships. I mean, there's an infinite list of things that could be the answer to that. But you have to decide for yourself what that is. And once you determine what you're optimizing for, one of the questions I like to ask is, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? Because if they can't, if your current habits and behaviors, if the current system you're running cannot take you toward this thing that you're optimizing for, something needs to change, right? And so these questions are really built around like trying to foster self-awareness and just getting a clearer picture of who you are and what you're trying to achieve. Once you've done that, then we can start talking about some of the more practical things. And obviously the book covers this in much greater detail, but I'll just give you two parting things to consider. So the first is what I call the two minute rule. And it basically says, take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes I mention this and people resist a little bit, you know, they're like, okay, buddy, you know, I know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out every day. Like I know I'm actually trying to do the workout. So this is some kind of trick. Then like, why would I fall for it basically? And I get where people are coming from, but I have this reader, his name's Mitch. He lost over 100 pounds. I talk about him in Atomic Habits. He's kept the weight off for more than a decade. And when he first started going to the gym, he had this rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds silly. You're like, obviously, he's not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back, you realize that he was mastering the art of showing up. Right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. 
And this is a much deeper truth about habits, something that people often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can optimize or scale it up or turn it into something more. It reminds me of that quote from Ed Lattimore where he says, uh, the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. There are a lot of things in life that are like that. You know, like the heaviest part is starting. The hardest part, the highest friction uh, piece of the process is getting going. So the two-minute rule kind of helps overcome that perfectionist tendency and helps you get started. And then the final thing that I would say is you want to join tribes, to join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, if you're surrounded by other people who are performing those habits and sticking to them consistently, it's going to be very attractive for you to stick with it for the long run. And this is one of those things, social expectations, social norms, that helps habits stick for years and years. So I think if you have those two things as a starting point, scale it down, use the two-minute rule, make it easy to get going, and surround yourself with people who are also performing your desired behaviors and habits, then you're on a good path towards uh, sticking to the new habit. James, thank you for that. I'm very mindful of our time. I want to end with using you as an example of atomic habits. You talk about this idea of uh, the plateau of latent potential. Recently, we interviewed a woman named Tiffany Aliche. She wrote a book called Get Good With Money. She's known kind of colloquially as the budget nista, you know, kind of a modern-day Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey. Um, an African-American female who used to be a, a teacher, and educator. She is still an educator, but now through personal finances. And what's interesting, her, her book, Get Good With Money, has been extraordinarily successful on Amazon and, and sold you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. And by many measures, people think, of course, that she burst on the scene. The, faster the fact of the matter is, is she'd been working on her podcast and her newsletter for decades. I think it was 13 or 15 years that she had been, quote, kind of toiling in obscurity. And people, of course, see her as a, you know, overnight success when there's, of course, no such thing. There is overnight fame, often fleeting, but no such thing as overnight fame, overnight success. You yourself spent many, many years building and writing a newsletter and a website. Can you relate your success of Atomic Habits to this principle of the plateau of latent potential? Because we all have it within us. I just want you to remind people, perhaps your own journey that came to and contributed to the success of this, what I think is your first actual book, Atomic Habits. Yeah, correct. It is my first book. You know, I, in many areas of life, we think that putting in a little bit of effort should lead to a little bit of results. So we think that the connection between effort and results should be somewhat linear. And the truth is, it often the greatest returns are delayed. You know, it doesn't usually work like that. And that, that actually can be a useful question to ask yourself. Like, what if this is kind of nonlinear? And, um, you know, this shows up in many different ways in life. So in my case, I was writing a new article every Monday and Thursday, and I did that for a few years. And that led to the growth of my audience and ultimately got me a book deal. And then I spent a couple more years writing Atomic Habits and, uh, you know, kind of toiling away in the darkness. And then the book came out and it was this release of all this potential energy that had been built up before. And so that's what I mean when I say there's kind of this plateau of latent potential. It's kind of like the process of heating up an ice cube. You know, like imagine you walk into a room and it's cold. You can see your breath. There's this ice cube sitting on the table. It's like I don't know, 26, 27 degrees. And then you start to gradually heat the room up. 28, 29, 30. Ice cube's still there. 31, 32. And then all of a sudden the ice cube starts to melt. And 
you know, it's this one degree shift, no different than the changes that had come before. And yet you hit this phase transition where everything starts to change. And the process of building better habits is often like that. You know, the, the process of like going, uh, you know, running for uh, consistently for like three months and being upset about not seeing a change in your body. It's kind of like the process of heating up an ice cube and, you know, uh, yelling at it for not melting yet when you've only gone from, you know, 26 to 30 degrees. It's not that the effort was wasted. It's just being stored. You haven't reached that phase transition yet. You haven't broken through that plateau of latent potential. You know, the San Antonio Spurs won five NBA championships and they have this quote hanging in their locker room. And it says something like, whenever I feel like giving up, I think about the stone cutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the rock a hundred times without it cracking. And then on the 101st blow, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but all the hundred that came before. And man, that is true with so many habits in life. You know, it's not the last sentence that finishes the novel. It's all the ones that came before. It's not the last workout that gives you a fit body. It's all the ones that came before. And somehow you have to find a way to keep showing up each day and keep banging on the rock and trusting that you are accumulating this potential energy that is going to break through. Um, but you need a little bit of faith and trust in that rather than just thinking, oh, well, if I do, you know, one workout or two workouts, I should see a little bit of results already because often the greatest returns are delayed. James, one could argue you're both in an enviable and precarious position. Your first book has become a number one New York Times bestseller, number one Amazon, number one Wall Street Journal. Its sales are uh, incalculable right now. What's next for you? Yeah, thanks. I, uh, you know, I'm just trying to keep it in, in perspective and say, you know what, Atomic Habits was a project that went really well, and I'm grateful for it. I'm glad that it's part of my career arc. And, uh, you know, now I'm going to shift my focus and look at the next project. And hopefully I can do that well, too. And whatever it ends up being is, is fine. You know, like I'm not going to get in, trapped into some kind of comparison uh, with myself. So I am working on a second book. Uh, the first one, depending on how you measure it, Atomic Habits took between three to five years to write. So, uh, you know, I still have a long way to go on this next one. Hopefully I learned something and can do it a little bit faster, but we'll see. Um, but, uh, but I'm excited about that project. And uh, aside from the book, um, each week I write my newsletter, which is called 321, which has three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and one question to think about each week. And uh, that goes out every Thursday and uh, we've got over a million subscribers. So plenty of people to keep me busy and uh, plenty of reason to, to give a great effort each week. James, thanks for the investment you've made in all of our podcast listeners and subscribers today. I appreciate your abundance. You're uh, not an easy guy to get a hold of because you're in great demand and you grant very few interviews around the calendar year. So we appreciate being one of those today. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your investment in the On Leadership podcast. Of course. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you back here for another interview next week on Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Mm -hmm.